This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. This is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. If you're new to the podcast, that's albums by Jubilee All-Stars, The Shanks, Nina Hines, Therapy, That Petrol Emotion, The Fatima Mansions, Whipping Boy, Into Paradise, The Stars of Heaven, Toasted Heretic, Jet Plane Landing, and many, many more. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please consider subscribing, liking, and sharing. Now, this is episode 30, and that means that over the course of 30 episodes, the podcast has focused on 36 different albums. A few episodes focused on more than one album by an artist and this episode does likewise. Simple Kids, two albums from the early noughties, simply titled One and Two. Sometimes they're referred to as SK1 and SK2. Simple Kid was the moniker adopted by Cork's Kieran McFeely in the early noughties. Kieran first came to her attention as the singer in Cork band The Venex in the mid-90s. By 1997, The Venex were signed to Columbia Records by none other than David Balfe. Once upon a time, Balfe had been a member of the Teardrop Explodes, or Balfi, as Julian Cope used to call him, and he had also run Zoo Records with Bill Drummond, releasing the first records by Liverpool's Bunnymen and the aforementioned Teardrops, of course. By the 90s, he'd established Food Records. He signed Blur, Jesus Jones, Dubstar and others. In the mid-90s, he sold food and he moved to a big house in the country. His semi-retirement from the music business became the subject of Blur's first number one, Country House. He's a city dweller, successful fella. By the late 90s, Balfe was back as head of A&R at Columbia and one of his first decisions upon signing the Venex was getting the band to change their name to the title of one of their best songs, The Young Offenders. Now, the band's debut single, That's Why We Lose Control, came out in early 1998. I DJed in Sir Henry's in Cork on Friday nights at the time with my old friend John O'Leary for John's indie club night, Gigantic, and I can remember Shane Fitzsimons, another old friend, coming walking out over the gangway above the bar in Henry's to the DJ box and handing us a promo cassette of That's Why We Lose Control. Shane had just been sent it into the offices of the Examiner newspaper. I'll never forget John stopping the music and getting on the mic to inform the masses that we were about to play the Young Offenders debut single. As you can imagine, on Lee's side, there was huge interest in what the band had produced, but no one had heard anything as of yet. The crowd of a few hundred people just stood and listened. We then rewound the tape and played it a second time and felt elated as the crowd went absolutely berserk. The Young Offenders released two more singles, but an album, though recorded, was never released. 
in a post-Britpop landscape, they kind of got caught up in record company shenanigans and were ultimately dropped. Kieran disappeared for a while, recharging the batteries, I suppose. He did some travelling in the US and he went back to basics, recording songs to a four-track machine with a basic drum machine. He resurfaced in London as Simple Kid and in 2002 released two singles for the great Fierce Panda record label, I Am Rock and Truck On. He was back. One, his debut album, came next in 2003 and a second album, again simply titled Two, followed in 2005. And then around 2007, Kieran disappeared. A third album surfaced last year on Bandcamp. Last September, out of nowhere, a Simple Kid gig was announced for April 2023 in Whelan's in Dublin. I reviewed it for the Irish Examiner. I wrote, A Simple Kid, the alias of Kieran McFeely, walked out onto the stage in Whelan's on Friday night for his first gig in 15 years, a projector screen behind him kicked into life. Via rolling text in a green retro computer game font, we're informed that his two albums from the early noughties were followed by a hiatus. Kids, a real job and a mortgage. A cheer went up from the sold-out crowd as the screen declared Simple Kids return with his third album, last year's SK3, Health and Safety. With his harmonica, fuzzed up acoustic guitar and backing tracks, he had us in the palm of his hand. Three songs in, the crowd sang every word of Staring at the Sun, one of the standout tracks from One, his 2003 debut album. And whatever cobwebs had been present were well and truly blown away. MacFeely smiled as the crowd roared their approval. He seemed humbled by the reaction and very happy to be back on a stage. MacFeely first came to prominence in the late 90s when the Young Offenders, the Cork glam-infused band he fronted, released a couple of memorable singles. But their big break never materialised. The Douglas Man then bought a microphone, a laptop and an 8-track tape machine and resurfaced a simple kid. Two acclaimed albums followed. He was compared to Badly Drawn Boy and Beck and memorably the enemy called him the postmodern Bob Dylan. After supporting Kings of Leon on a US tour in 2007, he disappeared. A few years ago, and based in the UK, he started quietly releasing new music on his YouTube channel. Songs he told the Whelan's crowd that he wrote late at night in his loft as his kids slept below. Midway through the gig, he swapped his guitar for a keyboard and played one of those late-night compositions, the plaintively beautiful Nobel Prize, and a song that suggests a more contemplative middle age. Dedicating it to his and all of our dads, he sang, My father changed the world, but no one gave him prizes. The scientific world never realised just what he'd done. He kept me warm. The crowd stood silently, a collective moment that everyone seemed to relate to, before erupting in applause. To a projected backdrop of 70s and 80s pop culture clips, old singles truck on, the average man and serotonin are rapturously received, but deeper cuts, super tramps and superstars and the commuter also inspire mass sing-alongs. This was a triumphant return. The headful of Bolan-esque corkscrew curls may have long receded, but there's no doubting the kid is back. 
So it was a great, great comeback. Now what follows is a candid conversation with Kieran. He's open and honest about the mental health difficulties that led to one or two of his hiatuses. And he definitely seems reinvigorated by the recent return to the stage. I sincerely hope we get to see him play live again soon. So here we go to Hear Knows When Great Irish Albums Revisited. Episode 30, 1 and 2 by Simple Kid. It's my great pleasure to welcome Kieran McFeely. So how's things? You well? I'm very well, yeah. Relaxed. Nice summer evening here, so... Where's here, Kieran? Where are you? Uh, Hastings, so on the, on the coast in the UK. Uh, Lovely. About five minutes walk from a beach. Oh, fantastic. Is that the loft, Kieran, that uh, you've been writing songs in? Yeah, that is the loft. Yeah, that's where, where it all happens. Brilliant. Uh, lots of fun stuff up here, but it's noisy for anyone down below. Yeah. And Kamir, how did you feel after the gig in Wheelands? Yeah, amazing. Really, it was heartwarming. It was great. Uh, I think I'd been building up to that from, I don't know when Simon suggested it, but it was, you know, it was back in September or something like that. So, yeah. you know, I was imagining all the things that could go wrong and they all kind of went, broadly speaking, right. So, yeah, great. I wasn't sure. I I think I mentioned that it was 15 years. Was it that long? I think it is. I mean, I, I don't know the exact... I always think of 2009 as kind of when, when it stopped because I, I, I was doing stuff in 2010. So 2008, 2009. So, yeah. And there was nothing in between. Like, there, was, there wasn't anything in between. So Before you came on stage, I was looking around. I was saying, OK, most people here are about... 10 years younger than me, mm. I was kind of thinking, OK, so maybe if they were in college in the early noughties, maybe they really remember those two albums from, you know, the early noughties. And because I was looking around me going, who are these people? Like I saw <laughs> looking around me, Kieran, everyone knew the words to every song. I mean, how in the name of God did that feel from the stage? Uh, yeah, that was that was amazing because I think. That became apparent in the in staring at the sun, and I hadn't even got. You, you may expect in a chorus, but I was halfway through the first verse, and they start singing the verse. So I was like, mm, "We're okay. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be good." Presumably, the nerves were lifted at that stage. It was just kind of like, "Don't mess it up now. You know, it's fine. They're doing all the work. Just don't like mess it up." Oh, it was brilliant. It was great. Like it must have been some amazing feeling when you walked off the stage, I imagine. Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot, actually, because, you know, you you just don't, you know, I suppose. I mean, it was interesting because over the years, people have offered me shows. Occasionally I get emails from people and I've always just said no, like there was some sort of block like that's finished. Um, So it was kind of scary going back into that. And there was all these weird uh, stages to it like I remember I was getting the show together and I suddenly which involves me kind of sitting here programming bits and bobs and and then I kind of thought I better go and play it and I didn't know how to stand like I was like Jesus how like how do you kind of act because it's like it's a, it's not arrogant but it's um you know performance there's a touch of bravado about it I suppose and kind of, which used to be I used to carry that around me any, any day of the week, but I don't really kind of think in that way. So there's all this weird kind of like, how do I act? Uh, there has to be a level of self-confidence, doesn't there? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, so it was all that. Was Almost cockiness, Kieran. Maybe. Maybe. It wouldn't, wouldn't go that far. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
I certainly couldn't walk out onto a stage. You know, there has to be some type of get up and go. So come here. I bet you could if, if somebody put your name to it though and said you're going to do a whatever, you know, yeah. speech, live podcast. In six months time and, and you're told tickets are doing well, it's sold out. Why was it right now? Like you said there, the promoters would have emailed you now and again. Why was it right this time, do you think? There's probably a touch of the midlife crisis about this age. And it's kind of like, well, if you're not going to do it now, is that you saying you're never going to do it again? So it was kind of just a bit of like, well, what do you want to do? Um, and why not? And I don't know. I just, it, for some reason, that kind of, I managed to, I mean, I didn't, it wasn't an easy thing. It was a bit of a uphill battle at times. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know why I put it down. I think uh, just one of those times in life where I was had a bit of space to think about things and managed to let it let it in. Brilliant. If it's okay with you, Kieran, I was going to take you back and talk about the first two records. Like we might even go back further and work our way up to that. I um I pulled out Kieran. So the last time we would have spoken, right, a campus radio interview on UCC, which was then transcribed by Jim Comic in Cork into wow. his fanzine Zeitgeist, which a gang of us at the time were all writing for. I remember Zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. This is December 97, wow. right? <laughs> Cringing already. Yeah, yeah. This was an interview with Campus Radio just before That's Why We Lose Control. Right, okay. And what I love about it is um, Murty did a review from... Um, Upstairs at the garage, the 9th of October, 1997. So Murty does a review. Wow. This was a big deal, Kieran. This was Murty in London, pre-internet, reporting back to Cork, you know, letting us all know what was going on, you know. That's crazy. A lifetime ago. Jesus. What age were ye when you all went to London? You'd have been late teens, wouldn't you? I think I was 19 when we got there. And then there was a big delay that kind of major label-y thing, you know, so we kind of got stuck. So by the time this comes out, the time you were talking about, you said it was 1987? Yeah. So I'm 76. God, someone do the maths for me. 86. <laughs> 96. So I'm 21, or on the verge of being 21. So you'd gone over at 19, Kieran, was it? Mm, yeah. The next we heard was there was a name change. So we'd heard, you know, uh, the V-Nex went to London and then you know, a year later or whatever, it was the Young Offenders. Mm. And that was all, wasn't that all part of the kind of shenanigans that go on with a major label, wasn't it? Yeah, there's a guy called Dave Balfe, um, who... Uh, no, I knew him from the Teardrop Explodes. Yeah, of course. I'm still good friends with Dave. I actually met him uh, quite recently. But Dave's very particular. He says it himself, you know, he's very particular. It's like he's got an idea and he's, it's like a dog with a bone. And he discovered, you know, some big bands and he did tear off explodes and, you know, um, so he kind of went with it. Um, it was his idea. He had this kind of, he had this kind of vision, you know. I had this weird thing of kind of, I, I had a supreme kind of confidence at that point in my life. Um, and I thought it's kind of, I used to love these stories about the legends that we all admire. And then you'd find out, you'd read biographies, you'd find out that it was, they were just hustling and, you know, you know, you, I'm trying to think of an example, but you'd find out a story about Bowie or something. You might love like this aspect of Bowie, and then you find out he didn't suggest it, and someone forced him to do it. And he didn't want to do, you know, maybe like cut his hair and dye it red. Someone else did it. So I was very enamored with these kind of ideas, and it was all going to be fine in the wash because I was going to be a legend anyway. So you know, who cares? And it was just kind of keep it moving forward. That was the whole thing. Just 
we were very kind of much that way. Keep it moving forward. Kind of get out, get out into the world. Uh, don't let anything stop. So we were very frustrated with the kind of the slowing down at that point with all these kind of decisions, kind of corporate decisions, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, like I remember, we none of us actually liked the name. We all thought it was a bit cringy. Um, but we kind of rolled along with it because if he likes it and he's behind us, we that was the thinking, you know. And we did that a lot actually. We did that too much, I think. He knows what he's doing. Well, did he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think ultimately, Kieran, wasn't there two or three? I think it was three singles came out, wasn't it? If if I remember. So Lose Control was sort of reasonably successful in terms of keeping everyone happy, and it, you know it felt good. I remember you were on that Chris Evans. What was that? TFI Friday. That was a big deal at the time, Kieran. Yeah, that was probably our personal sort of biggest thing. I would imagine that was our big thing. Yeah, that was something that we used to watch and. I imagine so that was great there's two singles after that um both kind of again very committee based and like we'll do it doesn't really know i think it was science fiction which was pretty awful actually um point pink i remember and blue, wasn't it pink and blue and by that relations had really soured I mean, we had like a blazing argument in, in the big sony office frustrations kind of coming out and they kind of released it but it was almost like dead before it even you know came out yeah so that at that point there was kind of yeah, the wheels had come off and yeah, it, was, it was what it was. And wasn't there lots of recording and re-recording and all that kind of stuff? Almost uh, the committee, as they talk about, like lots of people getting involved. Yeah. Yeah, there was. Uh, so we did the al- we did a few attempts at beginning bits of the album with different people. Um, and then we kind of we thought we were on, we were doing the album. We did the full, full album. Spent ages doing it. And then. I remember actually having that meeting with Bath and he kind of said, hmm, I'm not sure if I like the album. And by that point, I was just like, oh, my gosh. And again, like, Dave's really straightforward, though, to be fair. And again, I'm really good friends with him to this day. Um, um, you know, and listening back, like, I'm not a huge fan of the album. But at that point, I knew in my kind of, I was out of gas with these songs. I just couldn't face another run of it. And I don't think any of us could, really. So some of the guys just announced they were heading back to Cork. And I didn't even, like argue it was kind of like, like i hear it and i didn't try and keep anything alive i was like i'm on to the next thing or whatever so were you always going to stay in london at the time kieran and just start writing on to the next project was that the plan uh there was no plan it all went a bit nihilistic at that point it was just kind of it was i don't know what you describe it as it was just kind of existing it was very I mean, it was very funny. It was very fun. It was a lot of good times. But if you asked me, if you would have met me in the pub at that point, and if you'd said, what's the plan? I would have given some sort of funny quote about bleakness, but laughed out loud. And we may have had a great evening till very late in the evening, but it would be lots of that kind of sarcastic, like it's all pointless. You know, I just was kind of bowed out of everything for a while. You ended up going travelling for a while. Isn't that kind of the story? You know, I don't know how much of it is true, Kieran, or how much of it all made a snappy press release. But there was always this story of you hitting the, uh, you know, the West Coast of America and, you know, uh, hanging out, you know. Was that a nice press release or or was that what happened? Yeah, no, it was true. It was, um, that was what happened. I mean, it's going to say it might have been amplified, but not, not particularly. It was, um, after a couple of years of living in London and being very kind of cliquey with, you know, just hanging out with the same people. And my girlfriend at the time suggested going to America and she could do this kind of flat swap thing with somebody out there. 
internet was just beginning, I guess, so this idea of like, wow. So I went out with her and I think we broke up within about two hours. Um, you know, I kind of say when you travel with somebody out of your little pool and you realize you want different things. And I always remember going off on this, it's called the Green Tortoise, but it's, uh, it's kind of a great, an old Greyhound bus, but they take, it's a tourist thing, but they take you out into the mountains and into wherever. Like having been in kind of suburban pubs and just, you know, kind of musicy, sort of slightly kind of sarcastic kind of atmosphere, I was just suddenly out with people who didn't care about music in, in a kind of an industry way, just put together with loads of different people. And I just, I couldn't believe how good it felt. And then I kind of stayed out. There was, I mean, this bit was amplified about kind of homelessness as like he went home. What I, what I was doing, I didn't have anywhere to stay. So I kind of, it was sunny. And so I kind of had enough. I'd do like a, a hostel every like three or four nights. But those other three nights, I'd kind of sleep on a beach or something and kind of then go when I felt a bit freaked out, I'd kind of go and find a hostel. So I kind of did that for a while. What wasn't amplified was that it was a real reset. Like I felt really energized by the end of it. And I felt really um, clear about what I didn't want. You know, I didn't, I wanted kind of a bit of honesty coming. I said, I felt in the young offenders, we'd completely lost whatever integrity. The lyrics weren't hugely important in the young offenders anyway. You know, they weren't, it wasn't about a story or anything, but um, they were meant, the lyrics in the young offenders were meant to sound what I thought lyrics were meant to sound like. You know, that I'd pick words because I thought they sounded good. Yeah, I just kind of, I wanted something a bit more meaningful, I suppose, or maybe, you know, something a bit more nourishing. I think. You'd have presumably made a few contacts in London that you probably knew a few people, I imagine. I do remember there were two seven inches on um, on Fierce Panda, Simon Williams's label. I'd have known that label from the mid-90s, so it was pretty cool that you were putting out these two, two seven inches with Fierce Panda. Like, Fierce Panda always seemed to have a fantastic, you know, finger on the pulse of what was happening in London, you know? Yeah, Simon's great. Yeah, I met Simon in The Young Offenders, courtship days before we signed we had this kind of crazy period i don't i'm not sure if this happens anymore but you know lots of people taking us out and he was one of many i remember him from then it was actually through my brother he had a new band which were called fuzz light years at the time and they had managers and that's alan that's alan from the sultan yeah yeah so around this time i was i came back from america and i was crashing on his couch and, you know, I, I kind of eventually got my own place and I was. it took me a while to get songs together and all that kind of stuff. But when I kind of had some decent songs, he um, played them to his managers. He says, oh, does he play gigs? And at, at that point, I didn't play any gigs, but they kind of, again, kind of similar to the Dublin thing, kind of forced me, like, said, you know, go and play one. And they kind of booked one or I booked one and then I came to see it. And they sort of took me on board. And then they, when they mentioned Fierce Panda, I was like, oh, no, Simon. So I was... So I didn't really get the thing going in that sense, but I knew some people's names and were like, oh, I like him, or you know, I'm not sure. Brilliant. 2M was a new label. Yeah. It was an indie label that was being set up. Uh, there was all talks at the time. It was money. If I remember, it was money from Woolworths and it was money from Ministry of Sound. And it seemed this startup that was pulling money from all these different sources. Isn't that right? Well, I remember you never knew what 2M standard for and stood for. And it was like, is it 2 million? Is it 2 Mavericks? Is it 2, you know? Um, so around that time, I would have been very kind of... Uh, I probably didn't ask questions I should have asked, you know, so like I would just kind of gone along with it. And to be fair, there's some of that, you know, Young Offenders had lots of people begging at the door. Simple Kid had much fewer people. Um, and I remember Cheryl came down to a show 
um, supporting somebody at this point. So Simply Kid was much different. It felt much more organic. I was, I was because I'm, I'm thinking. That I remember the first time I met Cheryl. It was backstage at quite a big show that I played the opening slot for. So I was obviously kind of up and running with kind of I mean, it might be the thrills or somebody or you know like it was a it was a quite an established yeah. thing and she was there. So had you a manager at this stage, Kieran? Yeah, it was the same manager that I set up with through Elsie, through Alan from the so so they were on board from very early and they yeah. must have we must have got an agent then. And I was kind of quite used to playing shows and I was with a band actually so I had a backing band which you know means money which was coming out of somewhere I think I got a publishing deal sorry it's all coming back to me got a publishing deal which managed to kind of there was that there's always that really anyone will recognize this who's kind of gone from civilian land into the industry there's this really awkward bit where the industry's building but you're, you don't have any financial yeah. stuff going on and you yeah, yeah. annoying your boss because you take another day off and another day off I was working at Mute Records at the time, actually, um, as a receptionist. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird, like, I don't know, is the world different, but things like that usually just kind of happen. I don't, I don't get the impression they happen unless you really want to work at Mute, but I just kind of fell into it through a friend, you know, like, oh, we need a receptionist, can you do it? Okay. I'd never used a phone like that before, you know. How was your phone matter, you know? Appalling, appalling. And I remember, this shows how long ago it was, I remember my friend who got me the job, we used to do reception in pairs. I remember she was leaving for lunch and was going, before you go, show me that thing you just did. And what she had just did was copy and paste a paragraph. And I was like, what What have you done? Wow. All that stuff just appeared. I mean, it just sounds crazy now, but yeah, so. That's fantastic. So working, working on reception at mute by day and uh, hustling for gigs and stuff then in the evening here. Yeah, there was all this stuff like because Mute was on Harrow Road and Rough Trade was up the road a bit further on Harrow Road. So I remember on my lunch break going out to meet Jeff Travis, running up the road, taking a little breath before the corner, walking in all kind of calm and then kind of slightly worrying that, you know, I didn't have time to be back. But it was Jeff Travis from Rough Trade. So I'm kind of sitting away, but I'm kind of hoping that the conversation winds up because I haven't told my boss that I'm having a meeting. I've just gone for lunch. All these kind of silly things that could have been done much easier, but that's the way I chose to do it. And you said that you wrote most of that record, recorded most of that record in your manager's office at night. Yeah. So I'd done bits. I had this, I was going to say now famous A-track, but I used to talk about it in interviews all the time, but I had a cassette yeah, yeah. A-track and I thought it's so big. Uh, a lot of, you know, it had been started in my bedroom, but, you know, really up to the second verse and it stops, just runs out, you know, or, you know, bits are missing I've run out of track so like when you say a track Kieran are we still talking recording onto crappy cassettes like yeah yeah so like, like we're not talking a dat tape we're talking yeah. cassettes cassette cheap like wow. wherever you get them from Woolworths I think I had yeah, 758 yeah. mic and I had this machine an acoustic guitar and that was kind of my lot and probably a keyboard so I didn't have a computer uh, so I had a keyboard which had like samples you know like you know you could play drums on it with your fingers that was kind of enough to get the managers interested in certain things. Um, but yeah, he said, I've got a space to use. Cause at this point I used to move quite a lot, you know, like kind of renting in your sort of twenties. And yeah, I remember this kind of guy giving out to me cause I was singing in the morning. I was trying to record. I was completely into it and headphones. He's like, what are you doing? And so I was like, oh, it's horrible. So he had an office space. He'd, he'd do it for his managing, I guess. And then uh, he'd clear out and I'd go in at about six o'clock. 
in the evening and stay kind of around. And it was I, I actually love that because um, you know, my sleep pattern kind of changed. So I'd sleep during the day and and I used to kind of come down to Farringdon train station and these commuters coming completely like, you know, swarms of people and I'd be walking the other way to go off and have a little adventure and they'd be arriving as I left and stuff. And I was just kind of in there on my own, just getting it done really. By this point I had a computer, so I was kind of taking my my process was really long, but I would sort of get the A track and play those things into it and spend ages kind of getting the timings and all the stuff sorted out and battling loads of sonic problems that I didn't really know how to fix. But were the management or were there any other people who were kind of arguing with you that you needed proper studio time and you needed to do this in a proper studio? No, it was um I think there was an assumption that it would be mixed at some point, but it was kind of, I think from the moment I, one of the things I'd taken back with me from kind of, from the young offenders in America was I have no interest in doing it if it's not enjoyable and it's not, you know, I'm happy to walk away any second. I suppose I also kind of realised that's quite a powerful place to be in. If you genuinely don't mind walking away, people tend to go, okay, well, okay, let's have a go. So um, that was all kind of established just from day one really this is how it's going to be you know it's going to be one of those things and by that point there had been a lot of um artists i think had kind of that wasn't that unusual i think for a certain kind yeah. of person you had all the kind of beta band and people like that were making waves at this point so yeah so i was left there just completely to my own devices just for i don't know how long it took probably like a month or so or a bit more but maybe a bit longer um and i kind of i didn't get there fully i kind of had sort of like 90% of it done and then then I took it to a studio and again I took it to um I was very particular about the place I went to which was a kind of a kind of a guy who was just a bit he's a good mixer and it's a it's a lovely room I remember just thinking oh and it wasn't a famous studio it was uh up in Turnpike it was in suburbia and it was just him it was Pro Tools rig and we transferred it in and then if I'd kind of run out of energy sometimes, sometimes I'd just kind of hit a wall and I'd go, I need you to kind of record the vocals because I just want to sing them. And uh, yeah, and then we just finished it all off. How long did you have to wait then before the label put that one out, Kieran? I assume this process you're talking about was probably all probably through 2002 or something. I guess like so, that. yeah. Probably, yeah. But it wasn't that kind of like, right, well, we stopped. I remember they wanted some songs remixed by a guy called Steve Fitzmaurice, who's a very established mixer. And I put up a bit of a fight about that just on principle because I liked what we had done and I, that was the whole point. Um, we kind of had discussions and they they kind of, they sort of won the day in that. Like was that a couple of singles for radio play they were thinking? Yeah, of? I think it ended up being the whole album in the end, or mo- not all the album, maybe 90% of the album. But I liked how it sounded, you know. It was like the first one or two came back and I was like, oh yeah, okay, that sounds, that sounds really good. But it was quick, you know, we were always like... We'd, mixing there was no going back with him which what which is what was really important nobody said let's go back and re-record these songs it was like that that album has got many flaws you know that like it's not a it's not a kind of a coherent album um and i like that it was kind of left be that way now it's like that it was it is what it is the reviews were incredible for it kieran yeah it was... but also like and you know what i mean some of the reviews you could never stand up to some of the things they were saying. It, some of them were quite um, hyperbolic, you know. You know what I mean. But like some of them were great, and then others were like, "Okay." I mentioned the Bob Dylan, <laughs> the Bob Dylan one. <laughs> That's just setting you up for a fall, like you know. Yeah, I remember 
not so much in the UK, but I remember did my first interview in, in the US and they'd really taken exception to the Bob Dylan comments. Um, I mean, I was just kind of rolling with it. It's like, it's been, oh God. It was something, wasn't it like a, a postmodern Bob Dylan or something? Yes, there you go. I mean, I, I hear these things. I'm still sort of used to, with other musicians as well, like, you know, I, I didn't particularly pay any note. It was like, it's a good review. That's all I kind of was like, right, it's good. Maybe I'm kind of used to the UK press where everything's just huge and then awful and huge and awful. So, But I remember constantly having this really difficult interview where they were kind of like, do you realise what Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan means in America? And I was kind of like, kind of, yes, I don't know. And suddenly I was like, shit, I didn't say it. You know, like, what? Um, yeah, it wasn't me. Yeah, kind of like that. I'm looking here, Kieran. I'm going to embarrass you with one of them. The few seconds it's going to take me now to find this, you're going to be going, oh God, what's he doing? This is my favourite. I just think it's well written as well, which is, you know, which always helps. Like uh, this was from The Guardian. I don't know who wrote this. I can't remember his name. He gets his pungent social commentary from Dylan. OK, there's another Dylan reference. His third person vignettes from Ray Davies. Yeah, we'll take that. His swagger from Mark Bolan. And then my favourite bit. And his synthesizers by the sounds of it from a skip. Uh, yeah, I loved that. That's just great, isn't it? <laughs> There's the germ of truth in there. Yeah. There is when you describe this idea of um, recording first to a track before transferring onto a computer. It's real DIY, isn't it? This has come up a few times on this podcast, Kieran. This idea of maybe I don't know. I'm not putting words in your mouth now, but was it as a kind of an antidote to all the money that was spent on? the young offenders with Columbia and studios and producers, is it then almost as a reaction to that, you go, well, feck that, I'll, you know, I'll do it with an A-track. Yeah, it was, um, the young offenders all seemed to be, you use that word committee, it was all kind of, like, we'd, we'd often have quite good instincts. There were some good songs in there, there were some good ideas, and we'd put down a demo in a, in those days, in a small studio somewhere, and we'd really love it. And we just kind of want to go, we love it. We, you know, we could feel something cool about it. And then by the time it had been through the committees and the different, you know, I'd almost describe it as people head thinking and not kind of body thinking, you know? So people thinking, oh, but like and all these kind of brains kind of calculating and you just end up with something that just didn't have any soul to it, didn't connect with you. You just kind of, okay. I remember my friends sitting down at the end of the Unoffenders and just kind of having a real difficult conversation with me. And I remember him, if you excuse my French, just going like, and Kieran, like, the album shit. And I, and what really hurt was that, like, he was right. I knew it, you know, but no one had ever said to me. Like, was that one of the lads in the band? No, I was a school friend. Did you feel an extra pressure? You're writing the songs. You've brought a couple of school friends and buddies from home along for the ride. Did you feel extra pressure? Like, we're all back in Cork unless I can feckin' write a pop song. Yeah, there was definitely a bit of that. I mean, I remember there was one particular day where we were in a rehearsal room and there was a manager there and uh, we needed these songs and they got me to a total kind of creative block thing, pressure, you know. And I remember they all said, um, well, the manager's idea, you know, everyone's just trying their best to work things out. And they said, right, we're going to go off to, there's a pub down the road. Um, we're setting you this task. You're going to sit here, you're going to write a song and we're going to come back in an hour and a half. Just write the song, just do it. Yeah, and not not in a mean way, not like sort yourself out, but like let's try it. So they all went off, and I just like totally crumbled. I could see the clock just going as I've 
there's nothing there. And I just came back and I was just like dreading them walking in the door. They've been talking about some Rolling Stones, some sort of story about like Mick Jagger and Peter just being locked in a room and being forced to write songs. And they came up with probably the last time or something. That I hadn't probably the last time. <laughs> I came up with nothing. And it was just like so depressing. So yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, and the band wouldn't have wanted it that way. It, it's It's like, I need to be really clear that like they would have loved to be involved in stuff. And we had tried various things and, you know, I'm sure they'd have an opinion. They'd probably say, Kieran kind of excluded us, you know, because I, that's the way I kind of, I've never been great at collaboration, you know, it's always been a bit of a solo, a solo thing, actually looking back at it. So um, I probably could have done more of that. Uh, but that's what, yeah, I did. So I did kind of weigh it all on my shoulders, you know, and it had taken so long to get there. If you go back to, you know, we probably got our first interest when I was kind of 18. Um, and now I was kind of, maybe 22 and sort of just like... Probably about 95 or something, wasn't it? I mean, I remember... Yeah. I remember gigs. Do you know, I was in the co-op in Cork and I remember th th there'd be all this talk of, oh, oh, there's people coming in to see the V-necks, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. That was as early as 95, I think. So it had been quite a long time just to kind of hit the wall. Yeah. So we're going back to your thing about the... It was about moving it forward, about not waiting. Yes. You know, so someone might get really excited about a song. Oh, Truck On's going to be a... Oh, Staring at Sun's going to be a big hit. And it was kind of like, it's great that you think that, but we're moving forward with it. You know, I don't need it to be, like, ready. It's like, it's good yeah. for me. It sounds good. In a weird way, it's moving forward by taking a step back, isn't it? Yeah. Stop. And, and I also realised that all the people who are committing and predicting the penny had really dropped and no diss to them like but no one can predict this stuff yeah yeah it's it, it's a it's a it's a look at the draw it, it's kind of like just put it out there i think people respond to just put it out there you know just yeah just, and if, if it goes well write a different song I, I hate this idea of kind of holding this one back yeah yeah for when it's right the second single Oh, we had this song in The Young Offenders called The Young Offenders. And it was anyone who would ever kind of come and see us. It was clearly the standout song. It was clearly the big song. And like... Hold it back. Hold it yeah, back. It got held back to the point where it never came out. It was never released. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, hilarious. But... Kabir, the first album, it got you to play with some amazing people, Kieran, didn't it? Like, you really got to get out on the road. Mm, yeah, it was a real... It was finally happening. It was that kind of moment. Yeah. Did they give you some money? Like you mentioned, there was a couple of lads that in the band, so they must have given you a bit of like tour support to pay for all that, did they? Yeah. So by that point, I had a, a bona fide indie deal with 2M and I had money to live and money to pay them. And I had a publishing deal, so I can't remember exactly which way we divvied it up. But yeah, for a while we had money and we had money to go on tour. Yeah, it was kind of the classic sort of living the dream, as I believe is the technical phrase. You know, it's around this time, you know, like 0304. I came across NPR, National Public Radio, and I came across All Songs Considered. So I was listening to that from the early noughties. You know, terrible quality, depending on the bandwidth I had in work. Bob Boylan, guy that does those tiny desk concerts now that NPR are known for. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. His was always a great show, All Songs Considered. And then one day, around this time, 0304, he played something off the first album. And I can remember this moment of like, oh, my God, All Songs Considered are playing yeah. Kieran McFeely. Like, I just thought, he's made it. <laughs> Yeah, there was a, there was a few milestones around that time that did feel like big to me. I remember um, 
at this point, because I've lived in the UK for quite a while, there was good things there, but kind of going to America officially, like, was just a very exciting, very kind of dream, what dreams are made of kind of stuff. Did you go over for those, uh, is it the CMJ or South by Southwest or those those conferences, isn't it? Yeah, I did that and kind of met some labels over there. Went to the Chrysler building, which is a bit like a kind of an Empire State type thing and did an audition in a boardroom. In front of executives? One of which was Reiko Casey from The Cars, uh, who was now an executive at, uh, was it Decca? Not Decca. Um, I can't remember, you know, anyway, one of the legendary labels, you know. He's a big-ass producer as well, isn't he? Yeah, as producer, but he's more importantly, he's someone who I saw on the telly when I was a kid. NTUSA. I recognised that face. Yeah, yeah. He's sitting there. It was only him and two others. It's actually an awful audition. It was like an actual boardroom, like an actual lit up, you know, shiny table, and you kind of you're on like the nineteenth floor. You know, imagine like the Trump Building or something. And I was sort of sitting there trying to, and my voice was wobbling. And is this is this with the laptop and the guitar? No, it's me with an acoustic and a harmonica and a, whatever song I tried to sing, I could literally hear my voice kind of wobbling. It's awful, you know, when, you, when the nerves start showing. I mean, I got offered the deal, um, but it was just like, but it was it was that time where it was like, that was an awful audition, but bloody hell, we were on the 19th floor with Michael Casey. This is so amazing. It was just kind of like quite a lot of those amazing things to tell, to write home about, you know. So, yeah, it was really, it was really exciting. You ended up, was it, I, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the label, they're a big indie label in the States. Um, Yip Rock, wasn't it? Yes. We went to, uh, yeah, Yip Rock. Yeah. And then you got out on the road. Was it, it was Kings of Leon. It was, or was that off the second album? I can't remember, Kieran. Was that around the time of the second album? That was the first album. That was. Was it? At this point, I was, oh, there was all these kind of different. So Yip Rock were linked to company called it was actually vector management it was a management company called vector who kind of found kings of leon and nurtured them and did all that stuff so they kind of came in with so was it on vector was it a label i don't know sure but i, I went over there with simple kid one with uh we didn't bring the whole band i went there i kind of changed the band a bit at that point and i brought elsie along and a banjo well kind of an all-rounder who was his drummer as well so we kind of made this kind of three-man sort of thing happen. Uh, I've watched, there's a session of you on um, Morning Becomes Electric. The three of you doing a few tunes. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. Conan O'Brien's show came at that point as well. That was it. And that, and that was that session as well. That was kind of three of us sitting down, sort of banjoing and drum machines and things there. And, and we did that. Yeah, we did that for a while. Did loads of festivals over there. Loads of kind of cool little shows uh all been kind of quite hyped as this big thing it was all big exciting sort of thing and went to nashville for a while because vector were based in nashville nashville was really interesting because i had read about nashville not my whole life to be fair but kind of when i you know you kind of reach that age you start realizing country is quite cool and stuff like that i made this huge flaw in my thinking uh all the people who i loved in country i didn't pick up they were rebelling against nashville so I just thought, but they were from Nashville or they were, you know, so all the Johnny Cash's and the Chris Christopherson's and all these kind of, you know, um, I just thought like it's going to be full of Johnny Cash's down there. And then they kind of got there and it was like, not like that at all. It was very mainstream country. And it's like, what the hell? But again, you know, very, very fun kind of, uh, it was, it was mind, it was kind of a constantly mind blowing at that point. 
one thing after another. There was a Jules Holland appearance in the yeah. uh, on later in the UK, wasn't there? Yeah, oh. that was another highlight, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. Again, similar to TFI Friday, it was kind of something I'd watched my whole life yeah. and loved. Um, and Jane's Addiction were on the night I was on, and John Cale was on. So. I remember Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction kind of coming into my dressing room and going, hey, man, cool. <laughs> and I was just like melted because there's not many kind of metal bands or not even a metal band, but, you know, kind of rock bands who I who stuck yeah, with yeah. me. But I've always considered them to be like art. Oh, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Ritual della Habitual yeah, was, was just so good. Like really, really special album for me, you know, on constant rotation yeah. from 14 and, and stays with me. So and was it John Cale just himself like sitting at the grand piano? Uh, he was playing guitar actually, but he was playing it through okay. effects and things and doing his thing. And you can hear it in my voice if you do look at that. My voice, yeah, yeah. Are you quivering? Shaking away, yeah. Big time. I mean, I kind of get there after the first verse. Is it John Cale to Simple Kid? They're all they're all just there. I can't remember who's before. I was on that, so they do a thing with Jules Holland where if you're a bit more established, you're set up. Do they stay there looking at you? I thought if you're Jane's addiction, you're in your dressing room. Like, are they are they there watching you? Yeah, you're in. You're probably in the room. Wow. And um, but what they do with the kind of new act, which I was, is that you don't get a permanent place. So the bands have all set up, and they got these cool backdrops, and they yeah. you get a yeah, sound yeah. check and all that stuff, and then you get taken off. So there's that weird kind of like you're not quite. You're sitting in the background, or you're sitting in the audience actually, uh, and then it's kind of like right, it's your time to go. Which before gigs, I'd always kind of walk around and be sort of shaking my shoulders and kind of go, whoa, whoa, you know, just kind of loosening up. But you're kind of sitting there going, I might be on camera right now. Better look cool. And then just kind of go up and straight go into it. So it felt very kind of like, you know, oh, what's the sound like? And yeah, they are, they're, they're standing there watching you. So it's like, it's like there's John Cale doing, I keep a close watch. And then, hey, Kieran McFeely. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Oh my uh, and God. You're, you're also like, you know, like, word is spread so you know all your friends and family are you know watching it or will be watching it so because like everyone i grew up with watched jill's Holland's. yeah so you know if the word is spread you know so. amazing yeah really good really good experience though really nice and then you decided feck it what happened i don't know what happened you disappeared for about two years 2m went bust that is unexpectedly i was sitting outside a gig in bristol sold out a gig and yeah, they went bust. It was like, I remember just getting told, company's gone. I was like, what, what does that mean? Like, oh, let's do the show. And then it was all these kind of meetings. And we had meetings with the American. It was all tangled up with the American thing. And the album, in the in the upshot, the album wasn't mine anymore. Um, so it was kind of, it had come out, but I wasn't, uh, it was with a company called Dean. The liquidation had taken over. So they liquidized, liquidized? Taken yeah, two yeah, yeah. assets. And they were a company who just kind of do assets. They don't really, they weren't an active company. So the kind of album is just sort of sitting in, you know, whatever that state is, a kind of a legal shelf, if you imagine. Limbo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, still, still, Kieran, is it? It is still, yeah. So I still don't have any, if you notice, like on my bank camp, it's not up there because I don't have any access yeah. to it. I mean, I've got the file, nothing to do with it. You're saying that that first record is ultimately in the control of whoever... Yeah, uh, I mean, whoever the asset went a, out there's to. a kind of a theme here of me not trying massively hard. So me on that aspect of things. So yeah, yeah. I would have kind of gone, ooh. And I think we, we wrote out some tours. And then 
at this point, I suppose there's a lot of fatigue with me as well, and a lot of kind of. So I kind of just bailed out and kind of shut the windows for a while. Um, so what? Yeah, there was there was a bit. There was a few crises. There was a, there was one of many mental health kind of crises at that point. So I think there was me living in a flat in London. Uh, I'm kind of going to therapy sessions. I remember this and a bit like a version of America, kind of not really wanting to talk too much about. Well, talking about it, but not wanting to go back to that for various reasons. Um, yeah, so there was a kind of a whole crash. Uh, yeah. Is it going from this thing of like really high expectations and everything's looking great and the reviews are amazing and we're, you know, as you said, we've these like salt out gigs and we're getting on jewels and then suddenly being told, actually, the rug's been pulled out from under you there. That that's all gone and we're going to have to start again, pretty much finding a new deal. And at that point, is it you just go off? Oh, like you know you just can't take it and just go to hell with this yeah i think it would have happened anyway i think there's a whole thing um about kind of you know there's obviously a mental health thing with musicians and stuff yeah. being a solo artist as well you, you know kind of you're kind of holding a lot of it yourself i think looking back if someone was in that position i'd probably you know try and help them sort of put things in place that can help them understand it will go like this yeah yeah uh, but i think even if it had gone up I would have kind of, I would have found a way to fall out of it somehow. You know, I think there was, I was kind of, I needed out at that point. Yeah. There's a weird, it's that weird thing of, um, we've given you what you've always wanted. So now work all day long every day and don't you dare step off, you know? Um, yeah. So I should have kind of found a way to, well, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but like with, with age, you'd be a bit more kind of able to go, actually, I am stopping now for a while and yeah. see the signs of it. So, so yeah. I suppose the industry at the time wouldn't have kind of known what to do with someone who was suffering from mental health issues, Kieran. Yeah, maybe there's all that. I mean, I still think it's uh, probably a quite a difficult place to be for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, it's that thing of like, um, you, you've got everything you want, but why am I getting more stressed? You know? Yeah. You've got everything you want. So it's just kind of understanding that. So, um, yeah. So you went off and you, uh, you know, there was another, I think it was the, I think it was the press release for the second album, Kieran talked about you going off working in a video library yeah. for a year and just watching movies. That was a good line. Yeah, it was utterly made up. <laughs> I always went, no, 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 he didn't go in and watch all of Werner Herzog's movies. No, he didn't. <laughs> I probably tried to watch all of Werner Herzog. I remember, I remember me and my partner, um, my current partner is still, so even Dwarf started small was where I started drawing the line. I was going like, I'm trying to find it funny, but we're sort of, we watched this kind of circle of people going around for like literally yeah. 28 minutes. And I'm getting tired. I'm going to put my hand up and go, I'm not enjoying this anymore. I actually want to watch an episode of Friends now. <laughs> yeah. It's the one where he hypnotized the entire cast that I drew the line on. I went, no, that's just ethically, there has to be a problem here. Yeah. I mean, I do love, his movies but you know i always like many people i've realized i love there's bits i can't go with as well you yeah. know so it's that thing and uh, the, the video thing was made up just because i didn't really want to say at the time i've been in you know nhs rooms for the last blah blah so i just chose yeah. to kind of come up with a covering line you know that i thought sounded cool and then you eventually started work on um on the second record yeah so got the eighth track again so was that a long process to kind of work your way back it happened really quickly when it happened, actually. Yeah. And it was kind of a breakup album. 
yeah, it was kind of, I wanted it to be kind of a domestic album. I wanted it to be about, you know, I think Kate Bush, I'd read, she might have done her shows at that point, but she had mentioned something about a, show, a song called Washing Machine. And I remember reading these reviews of Kate Bush who's been at home for ages and she's written a song about a washing machine. I just thought, amazing. Like, that's exactly it. So I wrote songs like about dirty dishwater and all this kind of stuff. And But that was where I was kind of coming from. Again, I had a really strong kind of idea of what I kind of wanted. and um, But it happened quite, you know, reasonably quickly. I was working. I always remember I was sleeping. This will sound weird. I was sleeping with my guitar at the time. That, that sounds ruder than it is meant to be. But I had a big bed and the guitar was always there next to me. And I'd kind of fall asleep and wake up. And that was the first thing I'd have. And so I was kind of taking the sort of, I kind of wanted to get out of the, I was getting all the Beck stuff, you know, the new Beck, the new Beck yeah. stuff. And it was, you know, I could kind of see it, obviously. And I just kind of thought, oh, I, I want to be, I want to, I want to do something more coherent, which I never quite successfully did, to be honest. But uh, that was the idea to kind of take out some of the kind of bells and whistles and just let the songs kind of do the talking a bit more. But um, then I released it and everyone says the new Beck again. Wasn't it brought out on a new label that you had done with the managers, I think, wasn't it? Kim? Yeah, so we came up with the name. I think it was a name I'd have hanging around for a while, Country Gentleman, and it was just done through them, yeah. It was kind of uh, a guy called Rob Holden came into the fray, who was, he had done famously David Gray and done that split uh, where they kind of did all the money. So he essentially financed it through his company and we and a new manager at this point. The guy who recorded it was the guy that had actually done White Ladder as well, wasn't it? The David Gray record. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. And Paulson. Yeah. So it was the same sort of thing. I had the kind of track demos and brought them up to yeah. now. But now we brought them to David Gray's church studio. He doesn't own it anymore, yeah. but um, big church converted. Um, and Yeston was his kind of in-house engineer. So, yeah, we'd spend, uh, we'd transfer it in again and off we'd go and um, and that was really cool, actually, because I learned a lot from Yeston about how to kind of up my game with recording. Um, I was very kind of hands on at this point, And why, why are you doing that? What, what's that doing? And, um, yeah, so we just... Annoyingly? Like, were you annoyingly so? Were you still very much the control freak? Yeah, definitely. Um, annoyingly so? Probably, you'd have to ask Yeston, but I imagine he probably found it quite... Fr- uh, there would be a lot of... Um, I mean, I think everyone who's worked with me would have this. There'd be a lot of, I know it's wrong, but I prefer it. Um, Are you able to articulate why what you're hearing is wrong? As in, as in, are you good at letting like Leston or whoever it is, like kind of know what's in your head? Um, I'm better now. The vocabulary has yeah. kind of grown over the years. Um, and he would have kind of taught me a lot of those words as well so I now understand you know I understand what compression is doing and so before I'd be kind of like that one sounds kind of plastic and this one sounds like it's kind of made out of fur and I prefer the furry one and what I meant was it's over compressed you know you gotta learn don't you but um yeah yeah but there was a lot of me retailing I'm very particular about the kind of like anyone I suppose you know I just I know when it sounds right to me um that record got you back on the road, Kieran. Um, but I think, am I right in saying that was very much the one-man show, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Around that period. Yeah, there was, again, kind of, like every experience, there was things I kind of really enjoyed about 
and one of the things I had, I'd never really struggled. I don't know what I'm trying to say. There was a kind of a liveliness to my imagination and maybe my personality. Um, yeah. You kind of would have seen it at the Whelan show. There's a kind of a humour that I like, a kind of a goofiness that I, I like to mix with. The, so like a song like Serotonin, very kind of sad song, but I think it. I like doing something just before that that kind of makes me smile. And I think the kind of combination, for me, the kind of combination of those two things is very kind of powerful. And with my live bands, I always kind of felt I was kind of trying to do something. I, we should wear outfits and that'll be a big kind of discussion and we wouldn't really want to, but they'll do it. And I suddenly found, and you know, really nice, great musicians, but just I would kind of want to go in a certain way. Um, so going off and doing a few shows, why did I do a show? I must have done a show. I think we did this weird concept show at one point. It was a part of a kind of a weird concept weekend we did. And I did one myself with a laptop. And I had to kind of come up with all these things and I just found it really liberating. And I thought like, that was amazing. That felt great. I have it here, Kieran, in front of me. Yeah, it was three nights and it was a couple. There was Skiffle Kid, Deep South Dueling Banjos. Very yeah, good. Yeah. There was Sample Kid. Yeah. Technological Tomfoolery with the laptop it's described as. There was Simple Kid Brother. That was yourself and Aldi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was Complicated Kid. Yeah. That's where you were going to play a different instrument for every song. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. And then there was Karaoke Kid. Yeah. Where you were going to bring the fans into the fold. We did a whole tour of that. I totally forgot about that. That was hilarious. We kind of latched onto the internet really quickly. And we put things out to fans where if say I'm going to Birmingham, you can rehearse a song and I'll bring you up, just send me the video and we'll come to the sound check and we'll rehearse it. So people would start Brilliant. sending in videos of them playing my songs in bizarre ways. So I remember a guy had like a, a sitar. It's going back to how we started, Kieran, and I was saying, I'm looking around me at the sold out crowd in Whelan's and I'm trying to figure out who are these people but yeah, that's it. It's maybe, it's yeah. these people that felt really connected to it back in uh, 03, 04, 05, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. And there's obviously a big word of mouth then as well, you know? There has to be. That has to be it. Yeah. I was getting texts from friends in Cork, you know, who were all like... Uh, is it sold out? You know, you know the way, you know, the usual thing here. People were like, people basically wanted to know, had, you know, how did it go for you? you yeah, know? Yeah. And I was going, I was going, it's sold out. Everyone knows the words. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was surprising. That was surprising. Those shows, this was that period then, as you said, where doing something different, that was the big thing. Every, every night, mm. be it costumes or whatever the hell, but it was doing something different. Yeah, and the atmosphere in those was really joyous, and that was perhaps what was lacking. Um, I got the impression up until then that people loved the album, and then they'd come and see us live as a full band, and they'd kind of be into it, but it was a somberness, and sort of the, the sort of humour of the album was kind of lost a bit. I mean, you know, I was trying to do it, but doing those kind of shows, just, you know, I suddenly realised karaoke really works brilliantly for certain songs. It was awful for other ones, but you could do one of those complicated sample kid works brilliant for that song was awful for that the country thing you know so i kind of was able to then put together a kind of a one-man show and obviously all the kind of people who pay for things were delighted by this what well, we can go to america with just you great you know yeah, yeah and yeah. bands loved me bands loved having me on their tours because of course what's your setup yeah. i just need a laptop and a projector i'm out of your way 
and I was just speaking and turning up. I don't have to go like messing with backline. But even kind of in the wider, you know, bands come with characters and humans and they can cause trouble. And I was this very respectful character. So you name it, the band would go like, yeah, he can come and eat with us. It's fine. You know, he seems all right. <laughs> I was just this kind of pleasant guy who got out of your way. And so I got the tour. It was really, that album had like way less promotion and way less hype. And, you know, it didn't kind of get played on the radio much or the reviews were kind of all good, but it was less hypey, definitely. But the, it was really enjoyable. Uh, if I could kind of pick, like Simple Kid 1, it was kind of really intense. You know, it was really like, oh my God. There was always people in the room who were very important to Simple Kid 1. And God, who's that? And, you know, they're, they're yeah. coming to see you. Simple Kid 1 was, Simple Kid 2 was kind of flying under the radar. A lot of my friends kind of going, is it all, has it flopped? And I was like, I think it might have done, but I'm on tour in America again. And it's like absolutely amazing. So it was kind of a different thing. Um, and I kind of was loving it. I was just absolutely loving that whole sort of, I could do that for life, you know, just fly under the radar, but keep playing lovely places and getting fed well. That was, I mean, I was broke. Of course, but you know, uh, how many nights did you get to play with Spiritualized in the States? Did a fair few, did a fair few. Really what I'm saying is like, Jesus, it must be some thrill to watch that every night. Yeah, no, it was lovely, but there was all of this stuff that goes with it as well. So again, because I was just one guy, I could slot in and they were happy to have me. So we'd be getting cabs together and we'd be all sharing the same food and stuff like that. And, and there was loads of bands kind of inviting me around. So it was just, I was just kind of this go-to. I kind of got the impression I was just kind of, we need a support slot. I've got this really easy thing and he's kind of entertaining enough to the, the audience to be happy. Cool. <laughs> like he's cheap. So it was great. It was it was mad at the Whelan's gig, Kieran, because it was like um, when I saw the show long go with, you know, with the projector and the video, you know, like, and it was almost like futuristic in its use of projections. And even though like the, the pop culture content of the projections was obviously retro, but the, but the use of it was this kind of futuristic thing. But then when you when you did it again, it was this weird thing where kind of lots of other things have kind of caught up with what you were doing. So it was weird, you know? Yeah, it felt like playing with very old toys. Yeah. Old toys. yeah. So, Kieran, if you wouldn't mind, maybe, would you pick a track from maybe one or two and you might maybe explain why you've chosen that? I was interested when you did the gig, Kieran. I, I was keeping an eye on how many songs you were playing from the first album, how many songs you were playing from the second album. If you had to pick one song that kind of represents maybe those two records... What would you pick, do you think? I mean, I'm going to pick The Commuter. Okay. Because it okay. was the first song I wrote that I, and I remember playing it to a friend and I kind of thought the lyrics to this are really good. And I like, up as I said, maybe earlier on, kind of, I used to pick lyrics that I thought sound like that, that word sounds right for this kind of song. But this was like, oh, there's a whole like story here. And like the melody kind of comes second. And it was kind of like, oh, that's about everybody. Jesus. Oh, that's an idea. Write a song, you know, like really obvious stuff to most songwriters. But I was kind of that was my that was my kind of moment of like, oh, you can write about things that actually feel. And I think I kind of used that as the blueprint. I mean, not sonically, but just sort of like, is there a kind of a is there a is there a, is there something in this song? You know, is there something there? Uh, so I'd, I'd probably pick that off the first album. If I had to pick a second song off the second one, it'd be Sell the Tongue. I just think it was kind of the. the the best crafting of a song I've probably ever done, really. But I'll pick Commuter because it was the first of the, the bunch. Okay, we'll take the Commuter and we'll we'll come back in a few minutes, Kieran, and we'll chat maybe about um 
like the last couple of years and maybe um, the third record, maybe. So for now, here's The Commuter from Simple Kid 1. <coughs> You kind of then disappeared again after the second album, Kieran. There's a pattern here, isn't there? <laughs> Jesus, this is the third time, Mark. Uh, so you just disappeared and that was it. You know, there was the odd kind of thing. I think we got the road maybe, I don't know how many years ago, but that kind of dripped out. And then um, 
an old friend of mine in Cork, uh, actually Jim, who used to bring out all those like fanzines, Jim, Jim Comic, Jim Morris is his name, but Jim yeah. Comic as he's known. Jim was the first person who ever showed me the Internet. He's just always on top of things. And then Jim would always be emailing a few of us going, he's another video on YouTube. So then in the last couple of years, maybe the last three or four years, intermittently every few months you were kind of dropping another tune can you tell me maybe about what was going on, Kieran, for the last, well, we said at the start, Kieran, it's 15 years. Yeah. So children, family, dads, um, full time job and um, a lot of at the beginning of that thing, a lot of financial stuff to sort out. So stressful a couple of years, just kind of like, how we going to pay the rent? So that kind of took over, you know, all that kind of early, like little kids, you know just real life so very much so yeah um and i kind of i sold all my gear that i had for for that you know we needed this and i'll sell that and it was kind of gone then um and i kind of wasn't in any position mentally to to even think about that so it was kind of music was done it was something i would tell people i used to be a musician Um, i wasn't even teaching music at this point i was teaching english uh in like you know very kind of pressurely very kind of sooty you know, Mr. McFeely. I remember like students being told they had to be called Mr. McFeely. I was like, I can't stand like this Mr. thing. And that was it. And then kind of got to teaching music then, kind of worked my way into that and just kind of freed things up a little bit and kind of enjoyed sort of working with kind of 17 year olds and, you know, got to use my experience and you know, kind of doing that, jamming with them quite a lot. And was that down in Hastings, Kieran? Uh, a bit in London first and then down in Hastings, yeah. Well, well Bexhill, which is just along. But yeah, like a 10 minute cycle that way. So that's, we're living down here at this point. Um, but still, like I used to be a musician and now I'm a teacher. Was if you, you know, if I met you, that's what I'd say. Um, but I suppose kids kind of got a bit more self-sufficient. And at some point, um, I remember they're the speakers I'm listening to you on right now. Actually, I bought a pair of speakers for 200 quid. And I... Uh, I still had a computer with like software, which I kind of use more for teaching. I was teaching music tech at this point as well, teaching kids how to produce and stuff. And I, but I was always kind of doing it on headphones when I was preparing a lesson or whatever. And I kind of bought the, I don't even know why I bought, but I bought these speakers and I plugged them in and I kind of started playing a drum machine and just hearing the come out through the speakers, I just sort of sat there, like literally staring at the ground for about five minutes going like, oh my God, I love this feeling like this is like my whole body just kind of went like wow what are you doing like you so really I thought, missed it totally i couldn't believe i put this away i couldn't believe how visceral like it was it was just like and you know i had been listening to stuff on headphones preparing stuff but i was i think i was just goofing around for like you know 20 minutes but i just i just couldn't believe how much fun it was and how kind of right it all felt so we moved into a house at this point and there was an old, like, this loft where I'm sitting right now was like full of old water tankers and crap and kind of, it's been very slow process of being a belt, cleared it out and and I just started kind of, I bought a guitar for the first time, cheap guitar, it's over there, it's possible a hundred quid and then I could record and I started recording and I had this whole thing of, um, when I recorded, I started off really meaningful, I wanted it to be songs that my kids could find out who I really was. Because, you know, at that point, they were probably seven, eight, and you, you give them very kind of right and wrong lessons, you know, like, you know, be all good and don't be bad. And, and I kind of thought, I wanted to know kind of who I was. So I was writing just up here, I started writing songs. Again, like completely nothing, no thought of putting it out in any shape or form, just like write a song for kind of a record. 
and then at some point I must have decided to make a little video for it and put it out on YouTube and that, that began that process. Yeah. The last episode of this podcast, Kieran, it's with um, Bo Morte. They're this great band from Cork. They've put out four records. Like they were talking about that. Their first record was 2002 and the second one wasn't until I think maybe eight or nine years later. And as Bill said, he went, Paul, you know, like he goes, as you know, kids take an awful lot of your time. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's it. You know, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and so I should. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Come here. There's a few real standouts for me that you put out and you played a couple of them actually in the Whelan's gig. You know, like one of the ones I loved and it's obviously one of the songs you were talking about there when you were referring to songs that you could play your kids. But I loved um, Robot Lion and Grey Ghost. That's just beautiful track, Karen. Tell me something about it. Thank you. Um, yeah, so that's kind of based on my son being in hospital, actually. My son had a lot of breathing problems when he was little. And, uh, you know, we had more children, so my partner would tend to stay home. There'd be an ambulance call that we'd go up. And um, I used to always be kind of amazed at how sort of brave he was. He's a little kid and they'd put tubes on him and shit like that and like awful stuff. But he'd kind of, he'd had this weird kind of like strength. So that was the idea of kind of like this little lion heart. And I was just playing around with the idea. I was writing about him basically for the first half of it. I think I said it at the gig, like the song was sort of about him. Had his name originally in it, in the chorus. And then I kind of just thought, I actually thought my other kids would be pissed off his name in the chorus. <laughs> I changed it to Robot. Uh, the robot lion boy but um and then kind of halfway through the song it started becoming about an older person and i started kind of thinking about my dad uh and i'm his son and kind of i just thought oh, this is so amazing it's kind of a song about like three of us three kind of generations and finding each other and there's again like the lyrics were really driving it you know it's kind of the sun kind of goes away for a while and kind of you know takes it all a bit for granted and then kind of comes back so yeah, it was kind of really in that spirit of like songs with real kind of a bit of depth to them and a bit of you know meaning for me. So interestingly enough, there's a line in that song where it goes, "He is dying," and I'd often play my kids. They often you know prompt a lot. What are you doing, Dad? And I'd you know play them, show them all the buttons and how I'm playing. It was just hilarious. My kids were just so savage. Like that's their favorite line, and they would like sing along, like almost like they were pissed in the pub. But that that line would come up, like three of them would go like, "He is dying." I thought they'd be worried about it, you know, God, he's dying, they don't give a shit, they were just like, he's dying, yeah. <laughs> and Camille, one of the most affecting songs I thought was um, Nobel Prize, Kieran. That just really knocked me for six, um, at the gig as well, actually, you know. Okay. Can I ask, Kieran, is your dad alive? He is alive, yeah. Like, my dad isn't. My dad died a long time ago, and I think that's probably half the reason why I found it so affecting, you know. Like, you dedicated it to your dad and all dads, and even looking around me as you played it, you could see it was one of those moments at the gig where, obviously because it's a newer song, maybe not everyone knew it. And quite often, you know, Kieran, that's the moment where people start talking at gigs. But I was looking around me, and, and people were suddenly, like, really pulled into the to the song's narrative and you could hear a pin drop. It was incredible moments. Oh, it's lovely to hear. Yeah, I can't, I couldn't quite judge that one because I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty bad piano player and uh, I was just kind of really focusing on that and I, I never quite knew if it had landed. I actually read your review and I was like delighted when you put that. I was like, oh, okay, maybe. Because I kind of was, I was yeah. a bit of a, 
no, it did. As I say, I was I was watching out like to try and gauge the reaction. Mm. I was like, OK, how you know, because this is, you know, it comes at a point in the gig where it kind of changes the actual the actual kind of tempo yeah. of the whole night. And I was like, OK, you know, we've had a really uplifting, joyous occasion. How's this going to land? And it was amazing. No, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Great song, Kieran. That's a great song. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, so my dad is alive, but, you know, he's, you know, he's, my parents are getting old and it's kind of, it's almost written from the point of like, I'll tell you what's really nice for me about that song is um, my dad heard it on the radio. That's why I asked Kieran, because I wanted to know, did you have an opportunity to actually share it with him? Yeah, know? I mean, I didn't share it. Like, I didn't sit down and go, Dad, I want you to hear this song. But uh, my sister kind of mentioned it to him and then I kind of, there was a few texts, but then uh, he heard it on a, he heard it somewhere. And then he said, he texted me one day, said, I've been reading the lyrics and I'm really moved. And it was like lovely kind of conversation flowed from that. I don't know, you know, like it's, it's not a conversation that's easy to kind of bring around. Of course. So. Yeah, yeah. So it's got a power to it, I think, that one. It's, um, that's my kind of, um, like I have this kind of, uh, it's probably an Irish cultural thing, but you know, that's kind of veering into kind of cheese territory. And I was a bit like, oh, I'm going to put it out. But I'm kind of glad I did because, you know, it's, it's cool stuff. And when did you decide, Kieran, that there was enough songs there to maybe put the umbrella of, you know, uh, uh, SK3 health and safety around them and, and call them a body of work? At one point, I, again, at this point, so I'm training as a therapist myself at the moment, so which means I'm in therapy every week. So there was a kind of a really, it was out in my, there's a, there's a room out there. Um, and I kind of had this conversation about music with the therapist, actually, and I kind of got really kind of, upset and I kind of said like I've let this whole part of me kind of go and she kind of we kind of she kind of not that we'd call it contracting in, in therapy but she kind of contracted and said do you want a contract to do something and I was like mm. so it was little little baby steps really and I sent yeah. it off to get mastered and sent off to this guy and he wrote me like the longest email back which was like really helpful he just kind of said he'd never heard of me like in any way shape or form and he's like, I master stuff all the time. I just, this is, I love this. I absolutely love it. He's like, I laughed, I cried. And, you know, it, it's, it's like, it's a long email. I was kind of like, oh my gosh. So like these things really kind of helped me because it was like, okay, maybe there's something here. And, and then just kind of, yeah, other people, just people. Like I had a friend who's, she works in the industry and stuff. She came out to visit me just for like, coming to visit Hastings. We had a kind of a long talk and she was kind of like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you've got to get your stuff together and, you know, put it in one place for people to find it. And so it kind of, enough people just kind of coming around and i think i'd and then I, yeah once i kind of had it mastered i just kind of put it that was kind of easy i was kind of just put it on bank camp you know that's just doing it here and then just kind of nice things flowed ever since you know people like the wheelings thing definitely wouldn't have happened without the album and stuff so yeah. go back there training to be a therapist what's that like kind of having yourself experienced like therapy from the other chair at the at the opposite side of the room you know yeah, it's really, it's quite a big, yeah, it's, a, it's it's sort of similar actually on both sides of the chair, I realised. Um, yeah, so I see I see clients all the time now, um, every week. And uh, yeah, it's huge learning curve, like huge. But it, what, what's really cool is that um, it's levelling, you know, it's really, so you see other people and you kind of find out what you want as well. You kind of go, oh God, yeah, I can see. So yeah, it's really, it's really absorbing. It's, it's kind of the two sides of my kind of life now are sort of music, family, three sides music family and this thing is a big kind of thing as well. And will this hopefully take over from the teaching, Kieran? Yeah, I mean, I've lost that. That's kind of 
think I mentioned at the gig that's going to come crashing down. Um, so what's the official? I'm, I'm working on my notice. That's what we're saying. Um, <laughs> but um, I kind of need something that's kind of bitty and blocky so that if a show comes up or... Uh, so I had a meeting with a guy to kind of maybe make some vinyl out of the new album as well. So like kind of I want to be able to do stuff if it comes up and slimily put on wheelings. You know, we're talking about doing some other stuff. Um, so I'm kind of trying to look for this kind of my next phase, which is don't go away for five years after the gig. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of keep it going on a level that works. But I think that's one of the yeah. cool things, hopefully, about the Internet and the new world is that there's many people doing that now and they, they make things work in different ways. So surely off the back of, of the Wheelands gig there's surely going to be a bit of momentum there to maybe do another couple of gigs I would imagine Kieran. Yeah I mean, I mean you'd be you'd be mad not to do it basically <laughs> off the back of that that's basically what I'm saying. Yeah no, I, yeah. well I think I could feel it was it was really kind of it was, it was I felt welcome in the room that way. That surely does the self-confidence a world of good I would imagine. Yeah I know it kind of it was the final kind of message I needed I think but it's also like with this kind of age, it's love. It's really I can't say how lovely it is to kind of you're moving forward, but you're you're really not kind of like this is my new career, and I hope like in you know maybe it's MTV that shows how old I am, but like you know kind of you're just like I want to keep this part of me doing something. So that's cool, you know. Because things have changed in the industry in the last fifteen years so much, you can now do a one-off gig like that in Wheelands and make a lot of cash, which yeah. back in the old day. First of all, the ticket price would have been very small. But secondly, there'd have been so many costs involved with putting on a gig. Yeah, it's it's doable. And it's and again, you can kind of pick and choose the times and do little cool things. So it's really enjoyable. So it's always feels hope. I mean, I'm hoping that it will kind of work something out where it's always going to be quite an occasion. Yeah, I suppose that's it. You know, but hopefully that's not another 15 years, Kieran, to get to the next occasion, you know. If, I, if it's another 15 years, you can hold me to that. Something's gone terribly wrong. <laughs> Kieran, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh-huh. I really mean it. Welcome back. It was absolutely uh, wonderful oh, to you. see you take to the stage. Thank yeah, so I loved much. it. Thank you so much. Health and Safety, SK3, available on Bandcamp. Can we go out on Nobel Prize, actually? It's, um, yeah, it's Nobel Prize. It's uh, directly written to my dad. It's a thank you to my dad. That's what it is. Honest. It's probably the most sincere song I've written, but... Yeah, that's okay. yeah, that's all right. That's something to be proud of. Come here, Kieran. Um, thanks a million. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a million for having me. I've been enjoying the podcast as well. I came across it very recently, actually. So, um, but I've been sitting down listening to them, and it's been not just the music side of it, but kind of loads of phrases. When Stan was talking about um, like rent allowance, that would just trigger me. I'd go, oh my god, yeah, that's <laughs> the dream. You know, just things I've completely forgotten about. It's great. We'll talk to you soon, hopefully. It's long. Yeah, 15 years.
and that was Nobel Prize taken from Simple Kids' third album, Health and Safety, or SK3 Health and Safety. It's available on Bandcamp. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find the episode notes and loads more on Simple Kid, including a scan of the old interview I mentioned to Kieran from way back in 1997. We did that on Cork Campus Radio and it was published in Zeitgeist magazine. The podcast will take a short break for the summer and will return in the autumn. But keep an eye out for one or two bonus episodes between now and then. And again, I'd ask that if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, like and share. The theme music to the podcast, it's called Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy and it's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until the next one, goodbye.